Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Welcome to a special Florida-themed episode of AJC Passport. No, I didn't go to Florida, not now when the weather in New York is just getting good, but I did chat with two members of Congress from Florida, Democrat Ted Deutsch and Republican Brian Mast. Representative Ted Deutsch has served in Congress since 2010. He currently serves on the Judiciary Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee, where he is the chair of the Middle East and North Africa Subcommittee. He is also the chair of the House Ethics Committee. At Congressman Deutsch's invitation, I met with him in his office on Capitol Hill this week. Congressman Deutsch, normally this is where I would say thank you for joining us, but really I should say thank you for having us here in the Congressional Recording Studio. It's great to have you here. I don't spend a lot of time here, Sefi, so thanks for giving me the opportunity myself. We are down in the basement somewhere in the bowels under the Rayburn House office building for our first ever uh, congressional on-location episode of AJC Passport. We just heard this week some of the first signs of the Trump peace plan. There's going to be an international conference taking place in Bahrain. You chair the Middle East and North Africa subcommittee of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. What do you think the chances are for success of the plan based on what we've seen of it so far publicly and, and perhaps what you may know from the subcommittee? Well, we don't know much, so it's hard to judge whether the plan will be successful. We're not really sure what's in it. We know that there's now going to be an opportunity to come together to talk about economic opportunity for everyone in the region, for Palestinians, and uh, I know that, that Lebanon, Egypt, and others, Jordan, are to be included. There's a question of who's really going to participate, and I think we have to, to wait to see on that. Look, any opportunity that we have to talk about improving the lives of people who live in the region, uh, more peace and prosperity is the goal always. So I'm fine with that first step. But obviously, in terms of a plan, that's not really a plan. And, and what we're waiting to see is whether this deal of the century, as some have called it, is going to be introduced at all? And, and if it is, is there going to be a path to two states? Is it going to address all of the security concerns that Israel has? Um, what's going to be in it? So a little, little premature for me to, to gauge whether it's going to be successful or not. So stepping away from, from any specifics or perhaps lack thereof uh, with regards to the plan, representatives of the Palestinian Authority and, and Palestinian civil society leaders, many of them have announced that they're not interested in attending a conference like this. What message would you have for Palestinian leaders about the role, uh, about America's role in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process? Well, I was recently at a, a meeting in Jordan with uh, Israelis and Palestinians uh, talking about talking about the challenges in the region and the way forward and spending a lot of time talking about ways to uh, to make things better right now even as we move forward and so my hope is that understanding that any step toward peace is an important one any discussion that we can have about providing the Palestinians with better mobility, making it easier, as I heard in my meetings with the Israelis and the Palestinians, uh, Palestinian entrepreneurs who would like to have easier access for their products. Those sorts of discussions are helpful, but I think it's also important for us to be clear about where this is going, what we envision going forward, and certainly my hope that the goal 
at whatever stage it comes is a two-state solution, understanding the challenges and the really significant roadblocks that we face right now. I like what you said, Congressman, about steps that people could take right now to improve people's lives in the region. You know, there's been a lot of hubbub lately, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed it, about certain members of we Congress. We focus on hubbub <laughs> around here. About certain members of Congress uh, who maybe have greater sympathy toward Palestinians than toward Israelis. But aren't there some measures that the Democratic caucus or, or even Congress as a whole could focus on that would have really, you know, broad support, uh, perhaps unanimous support, certainly within the caucus. So I'm thinking, for example, of restoring USAID funding or restoring consular activity in East Jerusalem. Are there things that would be easily termed both pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian that all of the Democrats could focus on? Well, you touched on uh, you touched on some good ones. Certainly, restoring a presence, restoring American leadership in providing assistance, uh, humanitarian assistance, focusing on education and opportunity. Yes, that's something that there is and ought to be broad support for. Uh, at the same time, that gets to our ability to support people-to-people programs. Uh, there are remarkable things happening between Israelis and Palestinians working together toward peace, but in the meantime, working on shared projects, infrastructure projects, and peace building, and sports, and opportunities for Israelis and Palestinians to interact with each other. We should be supporting those kinds of programs. That's not controversial. It shouldn't be. And I've introduced legislation that would build upon the U.S.-Israel Strategic Partnership Act that we passed several years ago to look for ways to strengthen the relationship between the United States and Israel, and also to find ways for the United States, Israel, and the Palestinians to work together on economic opportunity, to encourage entrepreneurship, the kinds of things that aren't controversial and the sorts of things that, as we've been discussing here, could help to strengthen the conditions on the ground that can ultimately lead to peace. Now, there are some activists on the left, most prominently the ACLU, that say that the anti-BDS legislation that Congress has lately considered infringes on free speech. Um, On the other hand, the German parliament, the Bundestag, uh, just passed a resolution this past week condemning BDS as anti-Semitic. Why is it important for Congress to take action on this issue? Well, look, um, what we want, particularly for my friends on the left who join in talking about the need for peace, we have to be clear about how we get there. And if the goal is a two-state solution and there is a movement that is premised on the idea that there should be one state and that there is no place in that calculation for a Jewish state, that's going to make it harder to get to a two-state solution. It's going to make it harder to achieve peace. It's going to make things more difficult in the region. And significantly, it delegitimizes the state of Israel and the connection for thousands of years that Jews have had to the state of Israel. I think it's important for us to, to take action against that movement in order to preserve the possibility of a two-state solution and peace. BDS doesn't help the people that it says it aims to. It makes things more challenging on the ground, and it is, at heart, an effort to delegitimize the state of Israel. There's no place for that, and I hope that we'll have an opportunity soon for members to go on record and, and make their positions clear. 
Congressman, I want to shift our focus now back home. In just the past couple of weeks, we've seen four arsons or attempted arsons against synagogues in Boston and Chicago. Um, at the end of the Passover holiday, of course, a woman was murdered during prayers in a synagogue outside San Diego. And 11 people, as we know, were killed in Pittsburgh's Tree of Life congregation last October. What does this resurgence of anti-Semitism mean to you as an American Jew? It's it's terrifying, Zephy. I work in Congress and we spend a lot of time talking and we talk about issues and we talk about threats and uh, and we need to find ways to come together to combat them. Um, we've seen this play out in the discussions here on the Hill about anti-Semitism and efforts to politicize anti-Semitism that really make it more difficult for us to recognize this very real threat. For the longest time, we looked at what happened in Europe and other places and said, well, thank God we live in America. That could never happen here. And the fact that this gunman walked into the synagogue in Pittsburgh and murdered 11 people praying in a synagogue because they're Jews, it ought to send shivers down our spine. It ought to force us to confront the fact that anti-Semitism is very real and alive and resurgent all around the world, but especially here. You touched on, and you mentioned what happened in San Diego and the murder there, the Molotov cocktails in Chicago, the attacks to Jewish community and other places throughout our country. It's something that we need to come together on. And as I've tried to express to my colleagues, the reason I spend so much time talking about it, the reason we have an anti-Semitism task force that focuses exclusively on this issue is because the threat is so real and because it's it's a threat, as I said at the UN several years ago, and I was privileged to speak there. When you've got anti-Semitism in your country, there is real hatred in your country. We've always been the canary in the coal mine, and that's where we are here. And so it's little wonder that even as we're dealing with this hatred and, and these attacks on Jews, there's this resurgent white supremacy ideology that has led to attacks on other communities. Just as those Molotov cocktails were thrown at the synagogue in Chicago, there was a mosque in New Haven that was that was burned. Um, these are very real threats here and abroad, and we have to focus on them. Uh, or else the threats will will continue to increase. You mentioned the Congressional Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Anti-Semitism. You are one of the founding members of that task force, an initiative that AJC helped get off the ground in 2014. Why, even then, did you think that it was important to create this task force? And what kind of work has it been doing? Well, we thought at the time, as we looked at what was happening in Europe... Elsewhere, yeah. Yeah, we thought that we needed a place where we could... As, as we have on the task force, hear from officials, ambassadors from our allies from France and Great Britain and Germany to come to talk to us about what's happening in Europe. We thought it was important for us to show solidarity with the communities who were under attack other places. I don't think in 2014 we anticipated that we would find ourselves five years later in a situation where we're feverishly working to address the threat of anti-Semitism from the left and the right and the need to respond to both and to not allow it to become a political issue and to not allow one party or another to claim it is only the extremes of the other that's responsible for this. This pernicious hatred has to be confronted directly by all of us. That's what our task force is doing. I'll note that the membership on the task force just crossed 150 members of Congress. I know we at AJC would like to see that number climb up 
closer to 435. I think you would as well. Of course um, we would. If any of our listeners are interested in reaching out to their members of Congress, they can go to ajc.org slash task force, where we've put together an easy letter that you can send to your member of Congress, encouraging them to join or thanking them for joining. Before we close, I want to look toward Iran. In 2015, you, like AJC, ultimately decided to oppose President Obama's nuclear deal. And in 2018, again, like AJC, you opposed President Trump's announcement of U.S. withdrawal from the deal. You can speak for yourself. I'll say that on AJC's behalf, you know, we didn't see those two decisions as contradictory. The deal initially wasn't sufficiently ironclad to earn our support. Nevertheless, we believe that America has to keep its global commitments once they're made. Now we're hearing talk from the administration of war with Iran uh, or some kind of military engagement. We're also hearing talk from Democratic primary contenders about wanting to re-enter the deal should they be elected in 2020. What do you think should be America's next move with regards to Iran? Well, it's a really important question that, again, we've got to be clear that the threats that Iran poses, apart from the nuclear issue for just a second, but the threats that Iran poses now are the threats that we worried about at the time of the deal and that we've worked hard to continue to combat and that we have to continue to focus on their development of advanced missiles, their efforts in Syria and throughout the region to exert their influence, their support for terror organizations. Those are issues that we've been focused on. Now, we made a decision to leave the Iran deal when there was at least a discussion taking place about how to strengthen it and address some of the shortfalls in the deal. Uh, the sunset provisions, for example, the access to, to military sites, the missile piece. So we're not in those discussions now. But as we go forward, we can't simply make this a decision about whether to either re-enter the deal or not re-enter the deal, not when things have changed so dramatically. There are some of the presidential candidates, I think, who rightly understand and are laying out a position that says if there's going to be a renegotiation with Iran on the deal, it needs to be a strengthened deal. We need to address those shortfalls like we were doing with our allies before we withdrew, simply saying, I'm just going to go back to where we were, given everything that's changed since, I don't think is the right approach and just fails to acknowledge the actions by Iran since then and the, the necessary discussions that have to take place with our allies going forward. Conversations in the Democratic primary race around Iran are actually the exception in that, for the most part, the conversation is not including foreign policy, um, really, at all. You are a foreign policy leader within the party. What do you think the Democratic Party's foreign policy principles should be going forward? Well, first of all, I, I think on the issue of Israel and the broader region, as I alluded to earlier, we can't allow this to become, we can't allow Israel to become an issue that some try to make into a partisan issue. That's really dangerous. It's dangerous for the U.S. Israel relationship. It's dangerous for Israel's security. And so as we look at what's happening, I think it's fair to say that, for example, when I look at this field of candidates, of Democratic candidates who understand and are long, so many of whom are longtime friends of the state of Israel, that standing with our allies when they're facing risks and challenges is really important. That's true throughout the world. It's true for our ally Israel. So when 700 rockets were fired at Israel, I think it's appropriate for us as Israel's ally to stand up and show our support for the people of Israel who are facing those threats. And I think as we broaden that to the rest of the world, 
leaning in on the issue of being there for our allies, speaking out about democracy and human rights and the values that matter to us. We're talking about Israel. The fact is, these are the shared values of democracy and and human rights that tie us to Israel to begin with. Um, We need to be a leader in these issues. We can't afford to allow others to lead while we withdraw from international organizations, when we withdraw from our leadership position that we have maintained in the world since the end of World War II. Um, That's what's critical. But our values really matter, and we can't be afraid to talk about them, to speak up for them, and to be there for our allies. Last question. Our listeners here on AJC Passport are advocates. You are someone who is advocated to every day. What message would you have for them to be the best advocates that they could possibly be? I think it's a great question. I think advocates are best. Their messages are, are heard the loudest. They, they, they resonate most when they come from their heart, when they're about something that really matters. So for AJC activists who care so much about these issues that we've been discussing, being straightforward about why it's important to fight anti-Semitism and how it's impacted them, their families, their community, their people, that's really powerful. On the issue of Israel, it's really important to simply be straight on. Don't tiptoe around the issue. There is a long history of support for Israel by the United States, and there's a reason for it. And we talked about those shared values, and we talked about what binds us together. Um, Speak from the heart about that. And when we're talking about standing up to the BDS movement, that means not allowing this to become a partisan political issue, but it means, as we've said before, pointing out the problems with BDS and why it's not helpful and recognizing that there is a 3,000-year connection between the Jewish people and the state of Israel and that modern-day Zionism started in the 19th century and that Jewish self-determination in the land of Israel is something that we recognize and that we're proud of and history really matters and being clear about what that history is and not allowing the suggestion that Israel was somehow created simply to resettle Jews after the Holocaust. It's important to just be clear about what the narrative is, what the history is, not backing away from it, because it's only when you speak from the heart Uh, It's when you speak from the heart that members of Congress, I think, hear you the best and remember those conversations and act upon them. Congressman Ted Deutsch, thanks for joining us on UJC Passport. My pleasure. Thanks, Effie. Representative Brian Mast is serving his second term in Congress. Previously, he spent 12 years in the U.S. Army, where he was deployed to Afghanistan. Among other decorations, he received the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart. Like Congressman Deutsch, he serves on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and he's also on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. We spoke by phone on Thursday morning. Congressman Mast, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to join you. Now, you served with honor in Afghanistan and actually lost both legs in an IED explosion. And then, on your prosthetics, you volunteered in 2015 for a month in Tel Aviv, packing medical supplies for the IDF. Was there something about your service and sacrifice for America that motivated you to volunteer for Israel? Well, the, the reality is the catalyst for me going to volunteer in Israel was actually 
If you remember the summer of 2014, uh, the you know more recent Gaza war that was going on there, uh, I was a student up at Harvard. I was in Boston. There was a lot of anti-Israel protests that were going on during that time over Israel going out and defending herself from these aggressors. And I just thought it was so hypocritical. And at one point, I had uh, a couple of these protesters as I was out in a location where there was protesters in and around harassed me for being a U.S. service member. And it just was really that catalyst that said to me, those that hate Israel in that way, they showed me that at the drop of a hat, just how easily they start hating Americans, start hating veterans simply for our service to America. And that was actually the catalyst for me to say, how can I go over there, make my opinion known, learn about the nation and show my support for Israel at the same time? And that's how I ultimately found my way to doing that. Well, thank you for your service in both countries. You you mentioned uh, being a student at Harvard. You know, one thing that we've seen with increasing frequency on college campuses is anti-Semitism that masquerades as uh, as criticism of Israel. One component of that is the BDS movement, the movement to boycott, divest from, and sanction the state of Israel. Last week, you filed a discharge petition on the Strengthening America's Security in the Middle East Act of 2019. Um, a discharge petition is a procedural measure to force a vote on a bill. This bill includes funding for Israel. Israel and for Jordan. It includes sanctions authorizations, which can be used against the Syrian regime. And it also includes legislation to combat BDS. Why is it important to take legislative action against BDS? So this isn't just legislation that stands against BDS. This is the most significant BDS legislation with teeth to prevent it here in the U.S., that's existed in legislation. It allows states the ability to fight back by saying, if you're going to be a BDS entity, then we're going to be allowed to you know, boycott ourselves from you without legal repercussion, without individuals being able to sue them uh, for taking that stance. So it's very substantial. I don't speak to a group that cares about Israel where BDS doesn't come up. And the reason that I think that it's so important is I think there should be an equal sign after BDS, where it says BDS equals uh, human rights abuse. BDS equals a call for violence, because that's what's really going on there. It doesn't just stop with saying we should boycott ourselves from Israel, we should divest ourselves there. If you're saying that BDS is appropriate, then somebody is essentially making an acknowledgement that it's okay that the Palestinian Authority has engaged in bus bombings, suicide bombings, shootings, rocket attacks, stabbings, vehicular manslaughter, and all the other ways that they go out there and kill people in Israel year after year after year. You're saying they were justified in doing that. And BDS is also saying we should take this action because what Israel has been doing is wrong. It needs to be stood against. Uh, That's how I look at the situation. And I think it's incredibly sad that in the House of Representatives, this most substantial piece of BS legislation that people on both sides of the aisle have been talking about for a long time, not one Democrat member of Congress has yet gotten this piece of legislation to demand that it is brought to the floor of the House of Representatives. To give you one more quick point on this, this legislation passed the Senate by roughly you know, three-quarters of senators voting in favor of this. So that's Republicans and Democrats. Nancy Pelosi won't bring this to the floor of the House of Representatives because of the faction of people within her party that simply don't support Israel, and that's sad. Um, so uh, <laughs> that actually uh, brings me perfectly to my next question. Uh, at AJC, and, and I think in the American Jewish community uh, writ large, we believe that support for Israel has to remain bipartisan. You know, we can't simply rely on only the Republicans or only the Democrats to be supportive of Israel, uh, or else the U.S.-Israel relationship is going to wax and wane, according to domestic politics here. What can members of Congress, perhaps especially members of the Foreign Affairs Committee like yourself, do to maintain that bipartisanship? 
Well, I think in order to maintain that bipartisanship and for it to be just, for something you know to, to really be just, it has to be based in truth. And we can't be wimpy and weak and feeble and all those other things that I could say are taking place by not allowing a bill that stands against BDS to come to the floor. That's simply being a wimp saying we're not going to stand up against those that won't acknowledge the truth that Israel is attacked year after year, that Israel has a right to exist, Israel has a right to be here, uh, and that is the truth. And the truth is not always easy to stand up for. There's people that will fight against you, as we can see in this, but what we have to do is get those lawmakers to realize they're not put here to make easy decisions. They're not put here to make decisions just because, you know, some people might disagree with them, that they not have to go out there and make a hard stance or a hard statement. That's not what this working in the U.S. House of Representatives is all about. It's about representing the truth, which brings you to justice. And the truth is, Israel has the right to exist. Israel hasn't been in the wrong. Israel has the right to go out there and defend herself against this aggression year after year. BDS shouldn't exist. And, you know, I, I can't say this in strong enough terms. Uh, you know, I don't want to start swearing or anything, but I think <laughs> it's, it's crap and it's just pure placating to, you know, a faction of people in the Democrat Party that this bill isn't coming to the floor when this is the number one issue that comes up every single year with Israel advocacy groups that I've spoken to ever since I've been a member of Congress. It's ridiculous that this won't come to the floor. Everybody needs to be calling their representatives about it, saying, what are you doing? Pay attention to the truth. Get with the winning team and get on this issue. We're a, we're a family show here at AJC Passport, so that, that might be the first time anyone's used even a gentle uh, curse word in our year and a half on the air, but that's all right. We'll give it to you. Um, let I me, don't think you have to beat me out. Or <laughs> let, me, um, let me ask you this. We've seen the first kind of rumblings of the reveal or the impending reveal of President Trump's proposed peace plan that Jared Kushner and, and Jason Greenblatt have been working on with this announcement of a financial conference in Bahrain that will be geared toward raising money that could eventually go toward an economic peace. Obviously, without an economic peace, there can't be a diplomatic peace. And without a diplomatic peace, there wouldn't really, an economic peace wouldn't really necessarily make sense. Do you have any insight into the administration's plan or any feelings about whether it's doomed to fail or, or doomed to succeed? I think that there has never been a greater potential for peace to actually be achieved than with this administration. And, and the administration has done things that may seem provocative, but again, this goes back to the conversation of what we do has to be based in truth. So let's just take something really simple as a, a precursor to looking at a peace plan, and that's the simple statement that the United States of America will do something we've been saying we'd do for years, which is move that embassy from Tel Aviv into the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. Now, why does that matter so much when we're talking about peace? It matters so much because if other nations can't simply acknowledge the capital of Israel can't even come to the table and acknowledge that fact, that piece of truth, then we're not ready for peace. We're nowhere close to the conversation that we need to be having to have a true and just peace process. But what the president's doing 
is forcing these things to say, listen, we're going to acknowledge the embassy. We're going to go out there and acknowledge that the Iran deal was a bad deal. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And these are important stances because if people can't get there on those issues, they're not going to get there on economic peace. They're not going to get there on a number of other things. Now, I'll go back to a different statement that's been said many times, and that's, you know, you don't make peace with your enemy. You make peace with your former enemy. And this is a chicken or the egg question. Which one comes first? And whether you're talking about economic peace or any other kind, we have to have those other nations acknowledge that Israel will not be their enemy. They have the right to exist. They need to recant their previous views on Israel and acknowledge that, you know, what they were saying is wrong. They need to be a former enemy or peace process is not going to work with a current enemy. Congressman, I know that your time is short. I have one final question for you. You are a member of the Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Anti-Semitism. But what is the task force doing to address and confront growing anti-Semitism in the U.S. and around the world? So, uh, you know, to a point that we've already spoken about, constantly talking about BDS here in the States, on college campuses, you know, in other places. And when you think about that, Everybody has been on board with saying, okay, how can we actually do something with peace? Not just saying we don't approve of it or we don't like it. That's a nice feel-good statement, but it's not the same as something that actually has teeth that works to prevent that from occurring within uh, you know, government entities. And so this legislation that this discharge petition is all about is actually the teeth that helps us prevent this from going on. Members of Congress have been working on this for, you know, several years. This is something that we spoke to many, many groups about. It's bipartisan. People agree with it on both sides. But no Democrat members, even those that are on the bipartisan uh, you know, caucus for, for addressing anti-Semitism, are not on this right now because Nancy Pelosi is not allowing them to get on it, which is so hypocritical because so many people on both sides actually support this see this as the way forward to work to prevent anti-Semitism in a real way and prevent BDS, prevent anti-Semitism through preventing BDS. It's important. We need to see that piece of legislation brought to the floor. We need to see members of Congress on all sides of the aisle make sure that they're asked, why aren't you on this yet? And, you know, get on this piece of legislation because it matters and we've been pushing it. And just to follow up, what about anti-Semitism that isn't related to Israel, uh, white supremacist anti-Semitism, issues like that? across the board, we're in there saying, listen, we need to stand against it on every single front. Wherever it rears its ugly head, we will stand against it. It doesn't matter if it's somebody that says KKK or if it doesn't matter if it's BDS or or any other front, we're going to stand against it and constantly looking for opportunities to put not just uh, resolutions forward saying we condemn this, but also looking for a place where we have teeth to say, uh, you know, this is where we can hopefully stop it. Well, if any of our listeners want to encourage folks to join you on the Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Anti-Semitism, they can head to AJC.org slash task force, fill out an easy form to send a letter to their member of Congress asking them to join that important group. Congressman Mast, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. All the best. I wish you the best. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Florida. Good for the Jews? Well, since both of our guests happen to be from Florida, we might as well double down, right? Florida's claim to being good for the Jews actually dates back to its very entry into the Union in 1845. That's when David Levy Uli was elected to serve in the U.S. Senate, becoming the first Jew to serve as a United States senator. 
Since then, Florida has seen many more Jews elected, including current members Lois Frankel, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and Ted Deutsch. And many more Florida elected officials have been staunch friends of Jews and Israel, like current Governor Ron DeSantis, who will be holding a meeting of the Florida cabinet in Israel at the end of this month. Florida is also the third most Jewishly populated state after New York and California, with around 630,000 Jews. And that's just the full-time residents. Think of how much higher that number gets when their grandchildren come to visit. Perhaps most importantly, Florida boasts not one, not two, but three AJC offices in Miami, Palm Beach, and Sarasota. Take all of that into account, and I think you'll agree that Florida is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.